Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Gonzo Jimenez, owner and chocolatier at Miet e Chocolat in Denver, Colorado. Gonzo, I'm excited to talk to you, my friend. Me too, man. Thank you so much for, for having me here. It's going to be a lot of fun. So you are originally from Argentina. Just got back from a trip to Argentina. Excited because I'm sure that Argentinian roots are pumping through you right now. So as we always like to do, we start with the origin story. I think we learned so much about kind of our DNA in the industry from where we came from and our trajectory. So you were raised, you wrote this, you were raised in a Spanish household in Argentina, surrounded Correct. by good food and long family meals. Now there's several things that I think are going to be really great. I'm interested in what a Spanish household in Argentina means, knowing a little bit about the culture, but then also I love that you called it a long family meal. Like not, it was a duration of time that was memorable to you. So let's unpack that a little bit. Talk about being raised in a Spanish household, surrounded by good food and long family meals. Perfect. Yeah. As, as you know, the Argentinian culture, it's, uh, it's just, you know, there's so many people from different countries that came over to Argentina over the last, you know, 50 years after, after the wars. And that's how both of my, my parents end up in Argentina. My mom, my mom's side of the family, they landed there when she was very young and same thing for, for my dad. So uh, since I was very young, like all I could remember was eating, you know, Spanish cuisine. And that's also one of the reasons why Argentina doesn't have such a strong uh, personality when it comes to, to our, our food. So we have, you know, Argentinian barbecue and then dulce leche and a couple other things. But it's a huge, the Argentinian cuisine is just a huge mixture of Spanish, Italian, French and British uh, cuisine that just got mixed up together. It's uh, very European. Like it in is its, very, very European, correct. In its style, in its food, which I think is, is interesting. And then you definitely have the smoke and lots and lots of meat, which I think, you know, chefs like Malman and things like that have really brought into vogue. So that was always ingrained in you. And it was very Spanish. So talk about those long family meals, because I bet those were just I mean, sitting around for hours eating. Yeah. That sounds and, and amazing to me today. <laughs> Reflect on that as a, as a child growing up. Correct. And just like you said, I just came back from, from Argentina. That's what I did for the last uh, two weeks, you know, barbecuing with my family. And, and the barbecue, the beauty of it is not just about eating the meat itself, but it starts really, let's say if we're having dinner at nine o'clock at night, I'm going to start with my dad starting the fire at like 6 or 7 p.m. And that's when we start drinking a fernet or beer. And then, you know, my mom is going to bring a little cheese board and stuff like that for the guys that are sweating their butts off next to the grill. And we start really early and it's, it's the whole folk behind it. It's, it's the fun and the beauty of it. So 
it takes several hours to prep the, the, the meat in this case. And then we sit down and have dinner and then we just stay there on the table for a long period of time with the whole family. And this doesn't happen only when you're having barbecue. This is how we did, or at least in my family, we would sit down and have lunch or dinner and then we just stay at the dinner table for a while until everybody goes to, to bed. It's not like, and I've noticed this here in the US, everybody sits down for, you know, dinner takes 10 minutes and people eat really quick and then they move on with their day or go to bed or do homework and stuff like that. In our case in Argentina, we, we were there hanging out with the family for a while. And that was, that was awesome. You know, a lot of conversations and I got to learn a lot from my parents and my family. Yeah, the, the food, the mealtime here is the thing you do before the thing versus in a lot of other cultures. Argentina comes to mind, Brazil, I mean, they, they eat the entire day from the Brazilian friends that we have. For you, it's, that is the entertainment. Like that is, Correct. That, that is the event. And, and I'm, I'm in love with that idea. And just having gotten through the holiday season, uh, I even have changed the way that we do it because I love exactly what you're talking about. So we in America, Thanksgiving, Christmas dinner, let's, let's say those where you're cooking a ham or a roast or a turkey, whatever those are, there's so much work that goes into it, as all chefs know. And then you sit there and, and snack on a bunch of, of food for three hours, and then you have a 10-minute meal. And so this year, I was like, you know what? I went the other way. I literally did a prime rib and like a baked potato for dinner, and that was it. Everything else that I cooked was for the, the tapas hour. Like it was, it was all pre, completely inspired Perfect. by everything except American culture. Cause I, I think it's a, an interesting way to eat. So I, I love, love hearing that. And we need more of that. We need to spend more time around the fire. Cause clearly what an impact that had on you. Correct. That's, that's how I, how I grew up. Now you said at 17, you started working professionally on the food side you worked at a place called U22 in Mar del Plata, which is on the coast of Argentina. I'm always interested in how we get into the industry at first. So talk about that. Was it always meant to be? Summer job, just needed some money. Parents said, you better get a job, kid. Like, what was that first job in the industry? Why there and why that time in your life? Perfect. And this is, this is a, a funny story. So I grew up in a very comfortable household to be honest with you like I never like I wanted I always played sports and my parents were always always able to give me everything I ever wanted you know what I mean like you want to play I grew up like playing polo and 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 like very comfortable and then I turned into a little brat when I was a teenager to be honest with you just going out and, and not wanting to, to go to school and my dad was like as we know is Spanish old school uh, entrepreneur and he told me hey you need to go to school and choose what you want to do you know if you want to and he always had this in mind like you need to become either a doctor or an engineer or an architect something that you know it's it's known in in an in industry and I didn't want to I did not want to go to school I didn't want to you know become a lawyer I didn't want to go to school for six years so I got in a huge fight with my parents and I left my house at the age of 17 and I went to the coast in Argentina with like very little money. I went to Mar del Plata 
where all of my friends were, you know, having their vacations over there and they had their, their house uh, at the coast. So I moved over there with very little money and I grabbed my first job in this crappy little restaurant and I started as a dishwasher there because I just needed money. So for the next two years, I lived there in Mar del Plata. And I, I still remember, I lived, I rented a garage. That's where I was able to sleep. I had a mattress and I started as a dishwasher there. And, you know, I got like super infatuated with the cooks and the chefs. And I wanted to become just like them. Because all these other guys were this pothead surfer guys that were like really good in the kitchen and they were like you know sleeping around with all these servers and such and such i'm like these guys are awesome i want to become just like them so i enrolled myself into culinary school and that's how i lived for for the next two years and in argentina like culinary school is a lot shorter it's not like here in the u.s where you go to cia and you spend four or five years in school this was a lot shorter actually but yeah so that's what i did i lived for two years in uh in the coast and i started as a dishwasher there and then i turned into an actual prep cook and then i finished being a cook for for that young age oh dude i love i love hearing that it's so fascinating how we we find our people you're like these guys are fucking rock stars i want this it was not it was not polished it was not you know high society like some of what you're used to and you like you said that had to be a challenge because you're out there your buddies that you grew up with that had the privilege like you mentioned that you had they're out there you know out on the water on the boats they're you know have these houses right on the beach and you're sleeping on a mattress in a garage literally like peeling peeling potatoes (laughs) I, i think that's really great what a what a culture shock for you but clearly you were not deterred you bought in you were all correct. In. And to be honest with you, I could not wait to go to work. Why? Because that's when I would, that's, that was two o'clock in the afternoon. I was hungry, man. I would like get into work and just attack the fridge and just get like some cheese and bread or something left over from the day before that was in the fridge. And that's what I would do. I would just like eat, get a coffee, smoke a cigarette and start my day. Uh, and yeah, that's also how I spend to be honest with you, several years actually without talking to my dad. Uh, he did not want me to do this and he would see me as, you know, his thoughts were, I did not raise this kid uh, speaking two languages and, and, and playing polo and going to private schools to be peeling potatoes. But then he didn't realize that I was actually in love with this profession and I wanted to become good at it. And I wanted to, I was trying to like go somewhere. I, it wasn't, I wasn't just like peeling potatoes. I was trying to learn an actual craft. And then it took a while, several years for him to understand that and for him to tell me, Hey, I'm actually proud of you. So that was, that was pretty cool. But, but yeah, yeah it was, I, I had like a it. rough patch with my family at the very beginning. Sure. makes sense. You they completely uprooted everything, the path that they had carved out for you. So I think, I love it. I love that pushing against that adversity and, and you, you had the hustle. You knew that you were like grinding for something. You had to put in the work. And so you go to culinary school. Uh-huh. I'm very interested also how then 
first you got into the pastry side because I think it, it started there with you getting enamored with pastries and then really take us to I think maybe when you came to the United States and there was some time spent you know in, in Boulder Colorado in New York in Louisiana I know are, are places that you had stops what I want to get to is you are obsessed obsessed with chocolate and I am just Correct. so I'm so inspired by people that can be so dedicated to a singular craft as as you said you know the, the guy who is the best he just smokes brisket for 25 years and it's the <laughs> best that's and that kind of like absolute obsession and commitment is what it takes to be the best I cannot do that uh, I just can't so I want to get to that because I know that those formative years after you said, I'm in, I'm all in, going to culinary school, pastry and a chocolate. Take us through that time for you a little bit. Correct. So after a couple of years that I did in, in savory cooking and restaurants, I started traveling around Argentina. And then, yeah, I was working in this hotel and I got, I was very impressed by the work that the, you know, the pastry ladies, and I'm talking about ladies because they're back in Argentina, they were usually like older ladies doing this craft, developing this craft in the pastry department in some hotel. So I started working with them and I talked to the chef. I'm like, hey, believe it or not, I actually want to go over there to the pastry department and work with these older ladies and I just want to learn. And it was like, okay, so if that's what you want to do, go for it. So I started working with them and learning from them. And after a couple of months of working with these people, I realized that I wanted to go to culinary school back again for like just a short program and actually learn proper, you know, pastries. And that's, that's, that's exactly what I did in, in, in Buenos Aires and uh, it's called YAG, I-A-G. It's the Argentinian Gastronomic Institute. Uh, so I did uh, my, my, I formed myself in, in pastry over there. And then I started working for different hotels around Argentina doing pastries. And then back in the year 2008, 2009, I can't remember. I think it was, it was 2009. I landed in Boulder, Colorado. There's the St. Julian Hotel here in Boulder. They brought me from Argentina to start their pastry department. So that's how I came over here. And because before I got here, they were just like opening boxes of different pastries and frozen brownies and cakes and all that stuff. And they just wanted somebody to develop an actual pastry program. That's how I ended up here in the, in the U.S. They did a visa and and that's how it landed here back in 2009. And then after that, like playing around, well, I was, I started playing around with chocolate before that, when I started with, with pastry, but then, you know, chocolate has been in the back of my mind for, for a long period of time. Cause it was very intriguing and very, it's actually pretty technical. It's quite hard to work with chocolate. It's not, it's very different from, from what we do when it comes to baking because it's pretty exact, but you need to understand how the product actually works and how crystals actually work in chocolate. And that's how I fell in love with it. Yeah, I think that that's right away from hearing what you said about just going against the grain. Clearly, the chocolate seemed like the biggest challenge, which I, I would say it absolutely is, in the pastry side. So you, I'm not going to do the easy thing. I'm going to do the hardest thing. That's Correct. For sure. And then this is a this is a good little segue to another thing I think is interesting about you that for, for people to hear. You are like a crazy person when it comes to right to running, right? You are like 
I don't even know Correct. what an ultra runner is, but that's what you are. I, I'm fascinated <laughs> with that because clearly you're hyper competitive. You really that's push my yourself. personality. Yeah, it's a hundred percent right. I also like that I talk about positive outlets within the industry. We don't have enough of them, so that's the segue. Connect the dots. There, you are a runner. Were you always a runner? Did you parlay your competitive nature in running? into chocolate was it vice versa maybe connect the dots there as far as who you are as a chocolatier and who you are so, as an ultra yeah runner. The, I, I was actually a very unhealthy guy actually after so many years in in the industry that's that's what we always thought you know back in the day that was that was the badass thing to do you know just uh you know smoke weed and and, and drink a lot and do drugs and sleep around with the servers and stuff and that that was the norm back in argentina and then I realized that there's a lot more into that. And, and I learned that, you know, if you have happy thoughts and, and you have a healthy body, you, at least it helps me to be, become more creative and develop better things and, and, and work better and have like a, ver a better environment. And as we know, like my personality, it's, uh, I'm an extremist. I, I, it's all or nothing. So the same way I got into like the most difficult thing I could get into the culinary side or the pastry side which is chocolate it was the same thing for for running once i started running i couldn't do something those just normal people would do just go do a marathon no i had to do an ultra marathon so i started with you know 50ks and then i ended up doing a 50 mile race and then i've done 100 mile races and then i've done 200 mile races for 73 hours in the mountains of california so it's <laughs> It's always to the extreme with me. That's, that's the way it works. <laughs> I don't think I've run 100 miles in my life, Gonzo. You're a madman. <laughs> I think it's great. I think, it's, I think it shows. It, it's very clear to me to connect the dots between that mentality and that who you are in that and then your chocolate. It's funny. I think almost chocolate is interesting because it's, it's a place where your intensity is shines but it also needs to be restrained right because there is so Correct. much finesse and you can't force it if you're conching chocolate you're it's it's gonna take a while especially Correct. as much as you guys are working chocolate uh, you're clearly uh impatient in the way that you want things to happen and you're gonna push to make them happen so i think that's a, an interesting balance there of you need to slow the fuck down yeah. and, and know when to go fast, fast, slow, fast, fast, slow. I think it's super interesting. So your obsession with chocolate, I loved, I loved this. I always like these little fun facts about people. I learn a lot. You're so obsessed with chocolate. You have two mini wiener dogs named Correct. Cacao and Charlie, as in Charlie the Chocolate Factory. Correct. Clearly, this is, it has seeped into every facet of your life. Uh, I mean, tell us about these these wiener dogs. They're they're meant so for greatness. We have, yeah, we have two miniature wiener dogs. Like they have huge personalities. That's the beauty of of this breed of dogs. One of them we got him in when we were living in Santiago, Chile. My wife and I, and so we bought this tiny dog, and we brought him to the U.S. when we relocated back in in the U.S. This was three and a half years ago. And the other one, Cacao, we rescued him. Is this grumpy old wiener dog that we rescued in, you know, a rescue place here in Colorado for, for dachshunds. Uh, so that's what we did. And they live very happy and we gave him a lot of love. And yeah, we do spend a lot of time in the 
uh, you know, outdoors, outside camping and stuff like that. In the summer, we just bring them with us. Yeah, uh, I, was I was struck by uh, the duplicity of having dogs named after chocolate, but uh -huh. being a chocolatier, but you definitely don't want to feed your dogs chocolate and kill them. Like that whole, that whole dynamic <laughs> to me was like, the poor guy can't feed his dog his favorite thing in the world, chocolate, which is such a funny thing. Being in love with chocolate, being in love with dogs, and one can kill the other. I mean, it's, you know, that, that, that is so, like, a snapshot of being a human being, isn't it? 100%. I think it's great. All right, let's roll that obsession with chocolate into one of our best served on icebreaker games. I always like to geek out. Most of these games are because I love to research things. So chocolate, I'm like, let me look into chocolate a little bit. I also just have questions. I'm a super curious person. So I'm like, well, I'm going to ask an expert. So we're going to play a little game. I'm going to ask you a couple questions about some things that just make me go, hmm, about chocolate these days. And so I was doing some like, what are some of the history of chocolate? So I'm going to like rattle some things off that I thought were interesting before I even ask these questions. Because again, if I think it's interesting, maybe two other people in the entire world do as well. And hey, I'd like to tell them. So I think one of the things that's really interesting is that chocolate really comes from mexico and we'll talk about the countries where it's produced but mexico is is really known for it mesoamerica so down through central america venezuela uh -huh. ecuador and chocolate came to europe and then came really you know from christopher columbus bringing the cacao seeds back and it was so important to the indigenous people the aztecs and montezuma that it was it was treated as currency and uh, they actually used to drink it. I thought that was just super interesting. Having been to Mexico and having Mexican hot chocolate, which is now a whole different product, but the process was very, very similar. Um, True. Intensely bitter drink as well, which is super interesting. Having tried some like quote unquote original recipes, they were, they were rough <laughs> for sure. Yes. I, I thought that was interesting. Christopher Columbus like brings it back to Europe and then a lot of what we know as chocolates today really happened in Europe. Uh, the Dutch did some interesting stuff, adding like alkaline salts to reduce bitterness, the process of removing cacao butter, like half of the butter to, to be able to create like a, a really intense product was super interesting to me. We mentioned conching. Uh, maybe you can just tell people a little bit. Conching was, was created by lint, which we all know, um, uh -huh. famous, famous uh, chocolatier. And conching was actually named of the shape of the machine. It was like a uh -huh. conch shell. Can you just give everyone a quick, like, what the fuck does that machine do? So what this machine does, actually, it, first of all, it develops the flavor in the chocolate. And then also what it does, it grinds the actual beans with the sugar. It actually refines the product. So, and this is, this is the beauty of, you know, uh, chocolate from Switzerland. It's, it's, uh, it's so smooth, right? It's because of this process that it takes, it, it's going to depend on the recipe, but it's going to take from 24 hours to 30 hours to make it that smooth. So let's say when you're eating, uh, I don't know, lint or European chocolate, like Cadbury, for example, you put it into your mouth and it like dissolves so easily. That is because... The, it's been conched really well. That means that the microns, the, the particle size on the product, it's so, so small that it actually 
you can actually, you cannot feel anything grainy in your mouth, basically. That's what the crunching process is. And then it also, what it does, it's like, well, it's mixing the product itself. It's evaporating all the, anything like the bitterness and the acidity mostly out of the chocolate. Does that make sense? That's absolutely, yeah. It's, it's taking the lactose out of it. I thought that was very interesting that the natural, some of the natural acids and, and sugars being produced in cacao or lactose, that I thought was fascinating, which makes sense why it goes so well with milk, right? And then exactly. you have, you know, the 1800s were major. I was reading a little bit about the 1800s to the early 1900s was when, I mean, everybody like Lint, Godiva, uh, all these major, Cadbury that you mentioned, these major chocolate brands uh, came about and a lot of these innovations came about. The Industrial Revolution led to a lot of that, which is uh-huh. interesting. Nestle actually had created powdered milk, which then somebody created milk chocolate for the first time using the exactly. powdered milk that Nestle, and then Nestle ended up getting into chocolate, but they weren't in chocolate before. So just like fascinating the history of it. And, uh, and so some questions that I really had, Conching was one of them. Another one that just nags at me, what the hell is white chocolate? Okay, great question. So white chocolate is the cocoa butter with milk, sugar, and vanilla. So, so is it actual, chocolate? Uh, that's a great question. And that really depends on the chocolate here. I, in my case, in, in, like myself, I do consider white chocolate chocolate because it comes from cocoa butter, which is a derivative from, from actual cacao. Uh, but then in the in the chocolate industry, you know how we have like real chocolate and then we have the the non-real chocolate. What do they call it? It's a coating chocolate. That's what they call it, right? That is the type of chocolate that doesn't require any tempering because that chocolate contains palm kernel oil, which is uh, something that substitutes the cocoa butter. So it's this cheap ingredient. That's what they utilize for making actual chocolate. This type of ingredient doesn't require uh, development of crystals or tempering, right? So if I'm having a white chocolate chocolate with palm kernel oil in it, that is not white chocolate whatsoever. Why? Because the ingredients are going to be palm kernel oil, sugar, milk, and vanilla. None of those ingredients actually come from cacao. Understood. So as long as we got that cacao butter in there, we're good to go. So it's very important. Correct. White chocolate just happens to be more often mostly non-chocolate and emulsifiers and all that. So I'm with that. That makes sense to me 100%. Now, percentage of cacao. This has become kind of the leading, especially on the uh, consumer packaged goods side, the retail side. It's very prominent. You see 58%, 65%, 70%, 80%. Yeah. 9%, which just blows my, melts my face off. Yeah. Uh, I happen to be a 70% cacao, but I'm also just very interested. Tell us what that means. I think right away I thought, oh, that tells me how much cacao is in there, which exactly. then I thought told me also how sweet it was. But I've noticed you can have a 70% and it may be sweeter or less sweet than another 70%. So I was really interested. Talk to us a little bit about the percentages and maybe what that means if I'm looking to select a chocolate that I think is going to be kind of in my wheelhouse as far as the flavor profile goes. Correct. So when it comes to chocolate, like you said, we have different percentages, right? So for example, a 70% dark chocolate, the ingredients that I'm going to have 
in there are going to be cacao beans. Those beans are turned into actual liquor, right? And then you also have some additional cocoa butter that you're going to throw in there for fluidity in your product. You're also going to have sugar. And then you're going to have, uh, some people add vanilla or not. Vanilla, it's, it's always like natural vanilla. You're not going to add any extracts or anything like that because vanilla extract has uh, water in it usually. And you don't want any water in the chocolate production. And then you're also going to add a little bit of soy lecithin. The soy lecithin, what it does, it changes the rheology in your product. It changes the, the fluidity in your product. So when it comes to different percentages, let's say 70% dark chocolate contains, in that 70%, you have cocoa beans or cocoa liquor plus your cocoa butter. Does that make sense? The other 30% is going to be your sugar. Gotcha. Now, does the percentage of cocoa butter to cocoa bean can change as long as that accumulates to 70% of the total exactly. ingredients by weight? So exactly. that's where, can that affect sweetness? I'm wondering because I've had- 100%. Okay. Yeah, because I could have more cocoa butter that is going to take, you know, it's going to turn my chocolate into like something more creamy and it's not going to be as acidic why because i'm taking cocoa liquor off of it so i'm replacing cocoa liquor with mo more cocoa butter and then between those two products that come straight from cacao those two products are determining the percentage on on my chocolate understood and now it makes complete sense to me so now i know 70 percent range is my wheelhouse now i got to do the next step of looking what percentage of that is cacao beans versus cacao butter and then finding exactly. my personal sweet spot. See, I knew exactly. this was going to be good. Selfishly, now I at least know better what chocolate to buy. I don't know if anybody else listening is going to care, but I really care about that piece of information. That was so, so super yeah, valuable. Definitely. Looking into like the amount of cocoa butter that I have in my chocolate. Uh, and that's also telling me you know, how a lot of people say the best chocolate or the healthiest chocolate is the, the highest percentage, right? Because it has less sugar. But you have to put on the scale what you want in your diet. Do you want more triglyceroids? Do you want more fat into it? Or you want more sugar? So that really depends on what you can eat or not. And then there's this huge thing going on also that everybody thinks that the higher their percentage, the better their chocolate. So you could be eating a 90% dark chocolate and a lot of people and snobbies are going to be like, this is the best chocolate in the world. I mean, it is not true. Like there are so many ways of making chocolate, so many different types of beans and ingredients and processes that I could give you an 80% dark chocolate that is pretty crappy. And we could also have on the other hand, like a 55% dark chocolate that is amazing. So it really depends on how the chocolate is made, what type of beans we're using, what procedures we have in the manufacturing. And it's not only on, on the percentage that people are so fixated in. Makes sense to me. So that segues perfectly into my next question was really, you kind of hear the battle maybe at the top is always, is it Swiss chocolate or Belgian chocolate uh, technique and some of what, what goes into those uh, styles of chocolate. And then you kind of have English, the Dutch, the French, the Germans, the Americans that are, you know, vying for third place, maybe let's say. But so I'm very interested just at a high level, maybe what distinguishes to you the difference in technique, say, from a Swiss chocolate to a Belgian chocolate, 
and so, categorizing those a little bit. Yeah, the, I mean, when it comes to like making the chocolate itself, there's no such a, such a big difference when it comes to, to Europeans, especially nowadays that everybody's using pretty much the same technology when it comes to, to industrial levels. But the difference between, you know, how like different countries are known for different things, like, you know, Swiss people, they, they develop the whole crunching process and such and such. And they also have like this amazing uh, milk and dairy, right? But then on the other hand, Belgian people were known for coming up with the first bombas and, and what they call the pralines. So that's how they are known for, for their chocolates. But at the end of the day, they're different. They're known differently for, for their confections. Like for example, uh, Belgium versus French. Belgium chocolate, usually it's a little bit less fluid than a French chocolate. That means that it has less cocoa butter. Why is that? Because Belgium's uh, they're known for making their, their confections molded. That means that you want a chocolate that is a little bit thicker. So the wall on your bomb on the shell is actually a little bit thicker. If it's too runny, if it's too fluid, my chocolate is going to be thinner, my shell. And that's how the difference with the French people that they do all of their confections mostly in rote. That means that they're ran by a conveyor belt and their chocolate is actually very, very thin. So you have like a very thin layer. That means that your chocolate is going to be a lot more fluid. Does that it's make like sense a, a little bit? A hundred percent. It's like most things. There is no best. There's only personal preference because Correct. each of those is going to yield a different product. And to your point, you could have a Swiss chocolate which the percentage at this level with a higher quality chocolate with more cacao butter, which is going to be completely different than the Swiss chocolate right next to it. That, you know, is a completely different arrangement of those ingredients, percentages and quality. So I, exactly. I, I think, I think it makes a hundred percent. Basically the story is always find out what you like and find out who's delivering that. Like that's just, that's the game. So I understand that completely. Now, we talked about the countries where a lot of the chocolate is being made. I was really interested, and you're seeing this more and more as the packaging has become a storytelling method in chocolate, like you haven't seen in a lot of products. Before we start recording, I, I just was joking about how being at Whole Foods, going and buying different chocolate bars, being fascinated, you know, like how the packaging has really evolved. You open up the chocolate, and it's like a, you're reading a pamphlet, and I've seen Women, uh, I would say a little bit more so because they are really, really, I think, into storytelling in a way that maybe men aren't. And it used Correct. to be I'd see women maybe at the grocery store in the magazine aisle, just perusing the magazine or in the checkout, perusing the magazine before they bought the Us Weekly. I feel like I see some of that on the packaging. So I was very, very interested in that. And I started to look at the packaging and you see a lot of things organic obviously and food is big fair trade i see in a lot of places and then i start looking and seeing chocolate from ecuador chocolate from west africa indonesia and so i'm very interested in that so talk to us a little bit about the country of origin and as a chocolatier what you're kind of thinking about when you're navigating where the chocolate is coming from well yeah for 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 me that i'm a chocolatier and i'm, I'm also a chocolate maker there's there's a chocolatier is somebody who could actually make chocolate confections, right? But then you, on the other hand, you have somebody that is a chocolate maker that is actually somebody who could make chocolate from scratch. 
and you're going to find people in the U.S. that are actually just chocolate makers and they're not confectioners and they're, you're going to find confectioners that don't know how to make chocolate from scratch. So in our operation, we do it all. We're, we make confections and we actually make chocolate from scratch. When it comes to making chocolate from scratch, we buy the actual beans from different origins in different countries and that's we play around with those recipes and 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 we try to develop different flavors around it we obviously try to not buy any any beans that come from africa that is mainly because africa it's a, they, they produce you know commodity beans that means that they produce in huge in a huge scale and the flavor is not quite accurate or quite good so we try to purchase beans from smaller countries and that produce really great flavor cocoa like ecuador dominican republic peru uh bolivia nowadays is producing this amazing cacao so we try to focus on those guys colombia for example as well so we try to focus on those countries in order to produce our our chocolates yeah i think it makes it makes sense to me when i was looking through some of the chocolates and then I was like, okay, I'm going to pick chocolates from, from different countries. Very interesting where one chocolate that came to mind was a company based in San Francisco whose cocoa beans and farmers were in Ecuador and the chocolate was made in, in Switzerland. It's like, wow, what an what a international endeavor it is to get this chocolate into my hands. And so I was fascinated with that. And then reading a little bit, you know, on the background of you, one of the questions I was asked, I was like, well, it's one of those proudest moments in your career. And you actually talked about doing some demos and classes in Ecuador in the last couple of years. I was really, I mean, tell us about that because I think there's a lot happening in smaller countries, smaller cultures to bring, coffee comes to mind very much so as a similar, I think, story arc. So maybe talk to us a little bit about doing some classes down in Ecuador what it means to maybe connect to the source of the product yeah. in a more meaningful way. So over the last couple of years, I've been the, the, the phase of this brand here in the U.S. Uh, I've been the chef for this brand called Republica del Cacao. This is a small factory, a small company that comes from Ecuador, and they produce really high-end chocolate. So I've been representing this brand by just teaching classes and, and doing demos around the U.S. and then couple months ago I traveled to Ecuador which is where they actually produce this and they they put together this huge event called pastry Ecuador so they brought all these chefs and students from the pastry and culinary industry and they put together this four or five day event where we were teaching classes and demos for all these people the way they treated us and this is the great thing about it is it wasn't only me they picked up a couple other really talented pastry chefs from Spain and Mexico that came over to teach these classes. And, and it was like one of the proudest moments in my career. First of all, cause I was, you know, teaching a class right next to this guy that I've been seeing in magazines since I was 20 years old. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm like one of his peers now. Like I'm teaching a class with this guy right next to me. This guy used to be my culinary idol. So that was actually like a really cool moment. And then the way they put together this event, they treated everybody like rock stars, man. They, they, there was this demo that I did. There were like 400 people in culinary students and chefs. And they, they asked me like, 
what type of music do you want when you go onto the stage? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just a chocolate guy. Like, what do you expect? Like you're but a professional think, baseball player, and when you come to bat, you have your own entry I, song. Or like yeah, you're a boxer or something. I swear to God, that's exactly. That's, that's what they wanted to do. And that's the way he did it. I, I can't even remember what song they put in there. But it was like a pretty cool moment, you know? Yeah, see, I love just hearing this story from you because you're down there, you're doing this amazing demonstration alongside an idol for so many people, treated like a rock star, all, all these different things. I think that's the part of the story that's important. Uh, not because I don't care, but because of the, the nature of this podcast, I'm so much more interested in that. I, we're not even going to talk about what you actually did for your demo. Because it, like, it almost doesn't matter, right? It's so about the people that, that were taking care of you, the people that you were alongside, and the people that you were bringing value to. That's what's so, so important to me. So I, Correct. I, and, and, I appreciate yeah, that so the, much. The people that I met when I was there, that was pretty awesome. And that's what I could take from that trip. Uh, the, I had two ladies helping me out prepping for for these classes and, and the people that we were working with were extremely passionate about anything related to pastry and chocolate. And that's what you take when you comes, when you go to this, these trips. It's, it's great. The All people because that of an, obs an obsession over a quote unquote little thing like chocolate. I think it's an amazing, an amazing thing. That obsession clearly has paid off. Uh, that was super great. Super, super informative. I love that we brought a lot of facts, even some science to the conversation yeah. and, uh, and, and a little bit of heart as well, which is, which is what this is all about. So want to talk about some more of your people. I mean, this is what it's all about. Uh, take us back, you know, early on, we talked about that origin story a little bit, but I know you wanted to talk a little bit more about, again, some of those, those people that have an impact on you. So talk about where that started for you. Who is the first person that really sparked something in you? Well, I would say one of them would be my dad. Because uh, like I mentioned before, even though we had like a really rough patch when I started doing this, uh, after a while he understood that I was very passionate about it. And then that's when he explained to me that it doesn't, and he learned this also, that it doesn't matter what you decide to do in life. As long as you're passionate about it and you really love what you do, like that's, that's all that matters. You know, like money becomes a secondary thing and and I know I will never become a millionaire doing chocolate, but it's not, it's not about that. It's about like going to work with a smile on your face. And even though it's, it sounds cliche, you know, coming from a happy chocolatier or whatever, but it's, it is true actually like being happy, going to work happy. It's, it makes a lot, it makes things a lot easier. So that's one thing. Somebody that really impacted me was, was my dad on that aspect. And then also because he, he started this thing in my family. Like he showed me how important it is not only food, but the company and the people that you sit down at the table. That is so important in life. And, and to, I learned how to listen. I learned how to talk to people on the table. And I think that's super, super important, at least in my case. So I would say one of them was my dad. That would be like the first one. And then I have a couple more. Yeah. I think well. that's, I think that's great. Here's, Here's what I take away from, from what you're saying is food was always the like connective tissue. That table was yeah. always the, the place for it. You just found your own. So now chocolate is that for you, which I think is great. Because again, the origin story is so important. You just, we just came full circle to exactly why I bring up those, those early moments 
in our life because you're doing the same thing. You're not doing it with the exact same food that you did in Argentina. Yeah. You're doing the same thing, which I think is really, really important to kind of reflect on. So your dad, what's your dad's name? Mingo. Nice. You guys have great names, man. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so he's instilling this in you. Clearly coming together around the table was super important. He understood the value of that interaction. Why do you think it was such a challenge then for him to see you putting yourself on that path very literally towards the same path of like, I want to be the one that brings people together at the table as a professional and then that being so challenging for your dad to accept. Yeah, that's, and I, I understood what was going through his mind after several years. You know, I grew up in, in a private school and in, with a very uh, easy lifestyle, put it that way. I, I had everything that I wanted. Since I was 14 years old, I was already driving around and traveling and I never needed anything. So I grew up pretty comfy. So his mindset was going, he was thinking of, you know, he should go to school. And then since I'm the only boy in my family, I have three sisters and they're older than me. So I was the youngest one and the, 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 the only boy. So his mindset was, you know, he's going to go to school and then come back and work for me. And cause he, he had several companies. So he always envisioned that like I was going to be the one working next to him in one of his companies or whatever. And I was actually the opposite. I was the independent one and, and I wanted to do my own thing. And then at first he didn't understand why I was actually peeling potatoes for a living. Like he could not find, he could not see me having joy doing that when I actually was loving it. I did not mind doing dishes. You know what I mean? Like going home smelling like all greasy and <laughs> smelling like fish. And, and same thing for like, it took him a while to find out that I was actually doing pastries because that would have been even worse for this old school Spanish guy. Like, what is this kid doing? Like little petty force now? So that was his mindset. And then after a while, uh, he saw me in an actual magazine in Argentina when I was working in Patagonia. And he was like, what is this kid doing in this magazine? So that's when he realized that I was actually enjoying what I was doing and I was trying to you know, build a future for myself. I was, I was going towards something. That's when he actually got the picture of what I was trying to do with my life. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask you, like, what was that moment? There, clearly, there's a little bit of that machismo. There's a little bit to your oh, point. Oh, yeah. There was, there was also a little bit, like, you were disrupting his legacy, the plan Correct. that he had for you being an extension of his legacy, which parents do all the time. Like, until our kids prove that they're not a reflection of us, that they're their own person, right? So there's yeah. a lot of that at play, which is timeless. That that's always been the case with parents and children, right? And yeah. I, I think what's uh, really interesting about it is there's also a lot of judgment, especially if you quote unquote made it, you were at a certain prestige in life as your father was, your family was, and thereby extension you were to then say, oh, how's your son doing at university? Well, he's actually peeling potatoes. There's instant judgment there that now yes. you are not there. Now the magazine, that's the moment that there's external validation. People who in his mind now uh, matter said, your son is a fucking badass. 
And he goes, okay. <laughs> so I, I like that. I was going to be very, I was going to be get to that moment. So I'm glad you said that moment. A magazine is a great way to say, okay, now, now all of a sudden my son's more famous than I am. I get it. Understood. But like you said, you're never going to be a millionaire, but he got it. All right. So dad, I love that, that relationship. Clearly it was a challenge. It was rewarding. It was challenging and then rewarding again. So I think that's a great, uh, great way to start. Move us forward. Who's, who's somebody else that had a real impact on that life and career early on? Uh, Somebody else after that, I would say Chef Laurent Michon. He's the, the executive chef at this hotel at the, the St. Julian in Boulder, Colorado. So Laurent and I, we both started working at the St. Julian the exact same day. This was in 2009. Uh, so he wasn't actually the guy who hired me. The executive sous chef was the one who hired me. And we started together with Laurent. Uh, of course, he was my boss because I reported to the executive chef. But I learned so much from this guy. He had a background in, in like lots of hotels and Ritz Carlton and uh, a couple other hotel brands. And I learned a lot from this guy how to, on, on how to set up a pastry department with like very little budget. And we do have a couple, you know, funny anecdotes about buying equipment and like going to an auction and buying the first KitchenAid because we had like no more than 60 bucks for it. And believe it or not, is this fancy hotel and in Boulder. Uh, that's the way sometimes it works with ownership. You know, like they hire these people and they want you, they expect certain things from you and you have like a very limited budget. So we had to make it happen. Uh, and that's what I learned from these guys, how, how to like build counters out of anything that whatever you had that was actually, you know, uh, approved for, for a kitchen. And actually, I applied all that when I when I started my own operation here in, in Denver. When I started my my own production facility, uh, just making you know counters with. I went to Target, for example, and I bought these racks on wheels. And then I went to another place that sells granite slabs, and that's how I set up like all the counters. Something really funny, like we have developed, for example. Uh, we have this machine that is for making chocolate-covered hazelnuts or chocolate-covered uh, almonds. It's a, it's a dry J machine, right? A panning machine. You could buy the actual machine out of this Italian brand, and it's going to cost like $20,000. So using the same principle with very little money, what we did, we bought an actual cement mixer. And that's what we actually, because he does the exact same thing, and that's what we actually use for our our panning, for example. Uh, Gonzo, that's great. Gonzo, dude, I can't <laughs> tell you uh, how much I love that. I just, I, I am always talking about two people in kitchens, how the ingenuity that people in kitchens have always fascinates me. Sometimes, you know, the MacGyver, like they will just make things out of anything, make it work. Sometimes it is incredibly unsafe and OSHA would pull their hair out i just love it though you like you just find a way to fucking make it happen yeah and that's, that's, super that's cool. what we needed to do for example like there was this product that we needed to make it was chocolate covered chocolate covered hazelnuts and almonds and what we do it's not like right it's super you know we keep it clean and it's 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 an it's a legit production facility i just well i just didn't want to spend 15 or twenty thousand dollars in this equipment so i spent 250 on a cement mixer that works just perfect 
<laughs> and we did everything else for racks and boxes, containers, everything else. It's legit what we have, but we honestly did it with very little money. That is just more of your creativity showing through. Really Correct. dig that. So, so St. Julian, uh, are there any other people that you remember working with at that time? Love to give them some shout outs while we're thinking about St. Julian. Uh, this other guy, extremely passionate. The guy who actually hired me, his name is Daniel uh, Cofrides. This guy, this Venezuelan chef. Uh, he's been here in the U.S. for a long time. Very, very talented cook. He's, uh, he has his own restaurant now, a breakfast restaurant called uh, Early Bird uh, here in, in Denver. This guy's super, super talented, like very charismatic. He's the one who actually hired me. And then th there were so many people there. The, the banquet chef, uh, Mike, he's still there. Uh, who else? Jason Dollinger was another, another one of the sous chefs. There were so many other guys. Uh, we all worked together. We had, a, we had a great time. Such a small Hi. world in this industry. I live one and a half blocks away from Early Bird. Really? And I know, I, know, I know him well. We actually worked on a couple projects as consulting chefs together, including like doing some flavors for Noosa yogurt. Uh, nice. So yeah, I know him super well. His, his chorizo, shout out to the chorizo, breakfast chorizo, super Spanish style chorizo at Early Bird is one of my favorite breakfast bites in the, in the whole city of uh, Denver in the whole metro area. So I love, awesome. this, is why, this is why I want the shout outs because there's always just those little tidbits, those connections, those people that go, wait a minute, I knew that guy. I just, I'm, I love that. It's a very small scene when you kind of break it down, isn't it? Yeah, man. And Daniel was the one who actually hired me and brought me to the US. And honestly, he literally picked me up at the airport when I first landed here, not knowing what to expect from, you know, what's my first culinary experience in, in this country and he he was the one who actually showed me the ropes and along with uh Laurent Michon that was the, the executive chef so good all right move us forward a little bit who's somebody else that we can talk about a little bit that had an impact on you and then after the, so after uh, working at the St. Julian I moved to uh, the Hyatt Regency in New Orleans so it was like a very hold it, uh, another hotel but it's funny because uh, you know, the St. Julian, I had a very small pastry department. At some point, we were like five or six people in there, right? Which is a good size for that hotel. But then after that, I moved, I got hired to work at the Hydrants in New Orleans. And that was a massive, massive hotel. It had 1,600 rooms. We would do banquets for 5,000 people to, you know, 2,000 people, like very, very big. I had around 56 people in the bake shop. So the guy who actually hired me to do that work, to reopen that hotel, was Eric Damido, this French guy that had a Vegas background. He, he worked in Vegas for a long time. He was executive chef at the Caesars Palace for the longest time, for example. So he actually worked with some legit amazing French pastry chefs in Vegas. And I don't know for what reason he hired this 25-year-old kid to run this hotel, the pastry department of this hotel. So I don't know what he saw in me, but he actually hired me and he taught me a lot. He taught me the, the financial side of things, how to read actual, you know, P&Ls and, and finance reports and, and all this stuff and how to make an actual pastry department profitable. So I learned from these guys was like really intense, very hardcore, but very, very knowledgeable when it comes to money. So super, super smart guy. 
yeah, you got to come up with a reason why now reflecting back and you being in a position now where you have to recognize talents and, and skill and people that are 25 year, old, year olds that, you know, think they know it all and clearly they don't, but they have something. What Correct. was it? Why did he say, all right, this kid, I'm going to invest my time and effort into him. He, I think he saw that hunger in me. I was still pretty young and pretty, still new to this country. And I wanted to make a name for myself. And this hotel was being reopened after Katrina because it was, it was, they closed down the, the Hyatt Regency in New Orleans right after Katrina. And it was closed for seven or eight years. So Hyde Corporation decided to reopen it. And, and like they redid the whole hotel, basically rehired the whole crew and everything they hired this executive chef and he needed a pastry chef. And that's what actually, what actually happened. He hired me and he saw that, you know, hunger in me, that, that, that spark. And I think it, I'm glad I asked the follow-up question because opening after Katrina there, again, the biggest challenge out there is the one that is the most enticing to you, right? That had to be an immense challenge because I mean, there were a lot of people that talked about, New Orleans was never going to come back, especially the food scene and, and uh, tourism and travel. Like that's such a big part of that culture, and a big part of the commerce down there. There was Correct. people that said that would never come back. So clearly he saw that you were not going to shy away from a challenge. So I'm glad I asked the follow-up question because we got back to exactly who you are as a person, as a chef. So I think that's interesting. All right. This is always the time that we get to kind of our unsung hospitality heroes. There's, countless endless people that have had major impacts on us that just need more recognition more acknowledgement more attention for you who's one of those people that you want to take this opportunity to give a shout out let's talk about them a little bit i would say that person would be jackie lopez jacqueline lopez she, she was actually my pastry chef at the Hyde regency in new orleans i hired her and she was coming from chicago this short little girl and she was a total badass uh she knew how to work with people how to guide them and she had my back in every single moment you know what i mean so she was pretty awesome and extremely passionate about pastries and, and kitchens and everything and i had the pleasure to so she still works for hyatt now she, she's the executive pastry chef at the park hyatt in new in uh, chicago and uh, I was at her restaurant, I would say a month ago, and I was blown away by her desserts. Her, her plated desserts in the restaurant and Nomi are outstanding. And, and when I got to see that, I'm like, holy shit, this girl's actually really, really talented. And I'm really glad that I had the chance to work with her. Why do you think that reaction that you had, it was very clear, like when you're like, I could literally see your face, like, holy shit these desserts are really good. It's kind of funny because you knew that she was talented. You bought into that when she, when you hired her and she worked alongside you, like you knew that there's just like this moment. I don't know. It's like a, a, a proud father or something like your dad had when he saw the magazine, you're like, yeah. I knew it. I knew it, but I didn't really know it until this exact moment. Why do you think that's such a powerful moment in the industry? I, I want people to think about that moment more because if they, valued the feeling that you have when you had that dessert of hers of mentoring somebody like her, we would mentor more in our industry, which I think would be huge. 
So Correct. reflect on that a little bit. I think that, you know, mentoring, it's, it's a huge thing. Uh, it, it feels good to see somebody becoming someone in the industry. And by becoming someone doesn't mean like being famous or being in pastry magazines or TV shows or any shit like that. I think it's about people that do what they love and they're actually good at. And you can tell by their food that they enjoy what they're doing. And this is exactly what I saw on her when I tried her desserts uh, a month ago. And I think that I knew that. I knew she was going to be good. And I knew that she was actually good. But she was working under me. So I always had like the final say when it came to like, you know, menus and stuff like that. And now that she's the executive pastry chef, she has the freedom to come up with her own concepts and her own stuff. And when I saw that, I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. She's really, really good. Yeah, that's that's such an important element within our industry that when we have it, it's everything. And when we forget it, it's when we lose. Me personally, yeah. I, every single time I've done well, every single time I've fallen on my face, it's that. I can direct line from did I care about my people or did I take them for granted? It's bi It's binary. So I just want to keep echoing that. It's really, really great to hear that. And as somebody that is so focused, so driven, so wanting to make a name for themselves, the fact that you're so proud of somebody like that, it, it means a lot. So I really appreciate you sharing all the names, all the stories, all the passion that you have. We always like to leave everybody with a little bit of words to live by, a quote, a mantra, something to take out in the world, make it a better place. And you give us three important words, lead by example. What does that mean yeah. to you? That means, and, and I learned this in, in, in New Orleans from this guy, from Eric Damido. Uh, I still remember when we were opening this hotel and I got, I got hired to do this job. I was exhausted, man. We worked for, I'm not going to lie, like 100, I still remember there were 126 days in a row without a day off. And we were averaging 14 hours a day, right? So we were extremely exhausted, but I could not complain or say absolutely anything because the executive chef, he was there earlier. And then when I would leave at night, he was still there. So this guy actually led by example. And that's, we would always like follow him. You know what I mean? If the boss is working really hard, then we better keep working harder. And that's, that's what I try to do nowadays with my staff and at the production facility or, or any of our stores. It's just work hard. If they see you working hard and putting passion into it, they're going to follow your lead. It's not about like just sitting down and telling them what to do. It's just showing them how to do it and just working next to them because they actually get to learn. And for myself, I actually get to learn from them because I think that's even more important because I get more inspiration and then I could reapply it to any other things how perfect to end with quote-unquote words to live by that have nothing to do with words but actions as a man of action leading by example are perfect words to leave with everybody to go out and do some shit gonzo jimenez my friend thank you so much for talking to us no my pleasure man this was this was so much fun cheers <laughs> Really great getting to hear how much Gonzo just gushed over pretty much everybody in his life. Very 
romantic, very energetic Argentinian. That is very, very clear. <laughs> Definitely. So, so exciting. Jacqueline Lopez, I am very excited to talk to you because I could just feel the energy that Gonzo had when he was talking about having your pastries at Nomi Restaurant, the Park Hyatt in Chicago, just how proud he was and just how blown away. So let's talk a little bit about how you melted his face off. But always we like to start <laughs> getting, hear a little bit about you and then progress into the relationships that we have in the industry and kind of how Gonzo had an impact on you. So tell us, where are you from originally? Uh, well, originally from Houston, Texas. Okay, Houston, Texas. Now, yeah. growing, up, growing up in Houston, was food a part of your childhood? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Houston, I always like to brag, is um, one of the most diverse cities in the nation. And, you know, my high school at the time was the second most diverse high school in the nation. And I grew up like half a mile away from a Chinatown that kind of just stretches on for two or three miles. And, you know, it encompasses everything from Chinese to Japanese and Vietnamese. And so we kind of grew up eating pho and banh mi and Mexican food and just all kinds of different things. So selfishly, I got to know about the Viet Cajun. Like that has become <laughs> such an iconic mashup that I think is really fascinating. Just learning that so many Viet came to Houston and were really embedded in, uh, in fishing, in commercial fishing, because a, a lot of them were commercial fishermen in Vietnam. Was, it was just fascinating to me. It was not what I expected. And then hearing right. about Viet Cajun, I have yet to get down to Houston and get oh, into yeah. some Vietnamese crawfish boils. Exactly. How you got to Geek out a little bit on that. Like, how has that become so iconically baked into the culture in Houston. Yeah, I mean, it's just super cool, you know, all kinds of different Vietnamese foods. But, you know, I lived in New Orleans for, you know, a couple different times for a couple of years. And so I, I love all the crawfish and just like the different ways that New Orleans does it versus, you know, the Viet Cajun in Houston. And I love it all. I'm here for all of it. I'm into it. So Diversity, food culture was really important to you early on in, in the high school. When did you actually start in the industry? What was your first job working in food and um, beverage, restaurants, hospitality? Yeah, I was in high school, um, I probably right when I was 16. And my first job was Papa John's. Okay, was it uh, you just were into food, you needed a summer job, your parents yeah, said get a no. job or we're not paying for anything? <laughs> what, was, what was the deal? No, you know, I needed to get a job um, and I was ready to get a job, you know, get a little cash going. And so we saw that Papa John's had a little sign out, walked in, had the job and gosh, I stayed there for years, probably until I was 19 going on 20. And was it clear to you then? Did you catch the bug? Were you hooked? Did you go right into culinary or was it, was um, it kind of a roundabout way that got you into this is your life and career? It was a little, it was a little roundabout, but it's always been kind of hospitality for me. I mean, I knew like that I love to make the pizzas, like, you know, Papa John's, like they freshly slap their dough, like uh, to order and, you know, fresh ingredients ever frozen. And I love to make the pizzas and 
I was really good at it. And uh, after that, I moved on to Hyatt Hotels and, you know, just kind of kept going with hospitality. After that, I was front of the house in like a little cafe um, in my first Hyatt Hotel in Hyatt Regency, Houston. Um, but then very quickly after that, I moved to Austin where I went to culinary school. And then, you know, from then on, it's been, you know, 100% culinary. You, you were all in. All right. So tell yeah. us where it was, when it was that you and Gonzo connected, and then we'll dig into kind of how that relationship formed and continues to evolve. Definitely. Um, so let's see. I was actually in Chicago um, working at another Hyatt and he was looking for a pastry sous chef and gave him a call. Um, and I was just right off the bat. So like excited by his like passion and like his humility. He was so like humble and he just talked about, you know, well, I'm just like this little like, and can I say shit? This little like shit kid and like there's all these, you know, incredible chefs and I just wanna, I wanna be somebody. And he was so driven um, and so ambitious, but you know, at the same time, like so humble, always. Yeah, he is a seriously motivated guy. You can tell no he goes to the, to the extremes with his insane ultra running and stuff. Every time that guy talks to me, I'm like, man, <laughs> I like feel lucky that I got out of bed today and this uh, guy's like running 50k. Same, yeah, no kidding. Okay, well um, dig into that a little bit as far as in the kitchen, the the practical how he was as a leader, as a mentor, as somebody you're working alongside. Um, yeah, what was that what was that like for you? He was he was incredible. So um, you know, always like really encouraging. Um, you know, sometimes it can be hard to in this industry to get a compliment or a pat on the back, you know, people aren't always willing to do that, but he was always like there to like give you a pat on the back for a job well done. Um, but mostly just like the way that he saw art like through food and we would literally walk around the hotel and just like scavenge for items that we could cast with chocolate. And whether it was like disposable verines or like disposable to go bowls or like this, like really like weird metal pieces from engineering that we probably didn't know what they were really for. Or he would show up like from Home Depot with like dryer hose or vacuum hose. And we're just like casting everything in chocolate and um, just looking at like architecture and the decor of the hotel and, just trying to just see art and everything and, you know, just getting to make really beautiful things. His big thing was, um, you know, he wanted somebody to be able to look at it and not know that it's chocolate, you know, until they tell him and, you know, his work, you know, where we were then and where he was then to even where he is now is just like, he was incredible then and now he's just, you know, this monster of chocolate and pastry. Yeah, I was fascinated with his creativity balanced with this, like, MacGyver-like ingenuity. So I'm so happy to hear you say that again. He talked about, you know, turn, making anything into a work surface because so often the pastry department is, like, leftovers, right? You have oh, no yeah. room, no, no 
equipment, like no budget, no focus on you. You just like, well, just throw together some sugar and shit and like pump it out. Right. <laughs> so he talked about that sure. ingenuity and something like now I, I didn't even understand what he was talking about. It was just way over my head. And he's, he's talking about having like a, a cement mixer that now he's, you know, folding chocolate with. I'm like, man, <laughs> I love that it, it was out of necessity because nobody else was going to help him do it. And then now it's become kind of like a challenge. And it's clearly thing. the guy likes a challenge for sure. Have yeah. you, have you found yourself having a different level of that ingenuity versus having all the, the, the toys? Cause I'm sure at, at your spot now you could have all the toys, but do you find yourself going to home Depot more often than you thought you would? Oh, all the time. That's like, you know, you can, you can get the molds and the silicone and um, this and that, but there's only so much out there. And if you, if you want to make something really spectacular, you just got to kind of figure it out. And absolutely. Um, you know, we're even here at Nomi, we're folding up um, gold cake, laminate cake boards and, you know, casting them with chocolate and letting it drop out and making hexagon honeycombs on big three foot eggs and, you know, just absolutely, I learned that from him. That anything, you can use anything. Anything can be a mold, anything. And, you know, even like not molding, but taking chocolate and pulsing it a Roboku until it's uh, malleable and then being able to um, work with it in any way that you want. Now, all of a sudden, it's molding chocolate. Um, you know, just so much. Yes, absolutely. MacGyver and ingenuity from him. You find yourself channeling some gonzo isms in your own kitchen now that you're leading your own team and mentoring your own staff. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, we always like to take on a challenge and that's what gonzo did. He was always looking for a reason to make a chocolate sculpture. Like to be clear, uh, people weren't necessarily ordering them at, at higher regions in New Orleans. Um, he would just make them for, you know, this event or that event um, or the buffet or, you know, something like that, just because one, he wanted to learn by doing and he wanted to teach us and he would give us the opportunity. And I absolutely do the same thing. Um, you know, at my hotel, I, you know, we find reasons to make this or that and, you know, give these guys the opportunity to kind of find their own, creativity and their own eye and just like truly kind of like beat into them that you know you can use anything like if you can like dream it you can make it just have to find the right piece of plastic or metal you know yeah why do you think that is important this is interesting because pastry is so known as being so much more science because it's a, you got to measure, right? It's not as much being a gunslinger as you are on the hot side a lot of the times, right? So there's yeah. a little bit more precision. And then you're trying to find a way, like Gonzo kind of instilled in you, to like be very, very outside the box, right? So I like the, it's seemingly polarizing of being so precise and measured mm -hmm. and then turning anything into art that's got to be a challenge because those almost are two different mindsets. Yeah, I mean, sort of. It, when you're talking about the science behind it and you're talking about tempering chocolate, um, absolutely, it has to be exact and precise. Or, you know, baking cookies or cakes, you know, yes, absolutely. 
it has to have the exact amount of baking powder and flour and all that. But, um, you know, once those things are ready is really when you can figure out how to manipulate them and cast the mousse in this and, um, you know, cut the cake into this and try to figure out a way to make this inside here and freeze it so that when it's room temperature, it is oozing now, you know? Um, so there's still definitely that science and there has to be that precision and um, those fundamentals. But, you know, once, once that stuff's ready, it really, um, the sky's the limit. Yeah, once you have that foundation, mm-hmm. that bedrock, then, then you can do anything with it. I like that. Okay. Yeah. You're leading now. Who makes a great pastry chef? Now that you are in a position where you are leading, you have a team, you're hiring people, you're training them, you're seeing them go on to the next things. Who is it that makes a great pastry chef? I mean, what are some of the things that you are trying to instill in them from your yeah. position? And then this is a, the, always the opportunity. Let's give some shout outs. Who are some of the people that you're working alongside that you've worked with that you're just so damn proud of, just like Gonzo was when he was talking about eating your pastries? For sure. I mean, for me, especially right now, the biggest person um, it would be Solange. Um, she's my lead baker here. Um, my pastry sous for all intents and purposes. Um, we actually work together in Park Hyatt Beaver Creek, uh, up in the Vale area for about a year and a half. And she was incredible from day one, uh, just a sponge, um, could do anything. You show her something once and she she wants to know it. She wants all of your knowledge. She wants all of um, the work. She's always there, you know, everything that you could ask for. And she very quickly um, kind of got too big for that hotel. And she needed to learn, you know, she ended up going to Orlando uh, to a really big hotel. And she learned huge banquets and um, huge cakes and churning out wedding cakes like nobody's business and got even better there. So um, when I came here, and this was really my dream job, uh, Park Hyatt Chicago is the flagship um, park for all of Hyatt's. Um, it's always a hotel that I've admired. And so when I got the job here, it was very, I heard that I needed a lead cook. And immediately just called to lunch and said, hey, do you want to move to Chicago? And that's really, you know, in the industry, that's what it is, is, you know, if you're looking for that right hand, who do you want that to be? And without a doubt, that was her. And she just, you know, ever since she's been back here with me, um, you know, she's just above and beyond my wildest dreams. I would you know, be lost without her. She's incredible with cakes and, you know, baking and just has this love and passion. And again, this just drive and is ambitious and she's going to make just a world-class pastry chef herself one day. I really look forward to it. And I feel, you know, so privileged to get to work with her. And, you know, the rest of my guys are really awesome here. Uh, we have a pretty small team. It's um, 
three other bakers, Samaje, Donna, and Sarah, um, all of whom, you know, are just really incredible and always have my back and all really passionate. And I really couldn't ask for more. And then I don't know if Gonzo told you, but um, I actually work here with Chef Eric, who is our executive chef back in Hyatt Regency, New Orleans. So he's the one that called me up. So it's all kind of like what you were talking about, the interconnectedness and just calling the right person for the job at the end of the day. The relationships are everything, aren't they? Yeah. All, all the rest of it, the skills and things, you, you can learn them. The, the ability to build those relationships is so, so important. And it's really easy in our industry to burn bridges. So clearly you have made a point to build those bridges. And multiple times now, we've talked about four different people, you included, that are just so interconnected through, through those relationships. I think that is super interesting and super valuable. All right. That was a lot of why and who. I'm really into that. Let's give just a moment. He was like, freaking the fuck out about your desserts so Aww. talk maybe just a little bit what what are some of the things that are on your menu right now that like really represent you let's let us uh, just salivate a little bit on a couple of the uh, things you're putting on a plate right now sure um so we're in a very french modern uh, restaurant so we take kind of french techniques most of the time um and then put the modern fun twist on them we try to pull you know all kind of nostalgic desserts are you know huge for me so i think gonzo probably had the um baked alaska which is very cool you know it's like a cylinder um ice cream and it's a brown butter pecan um and then we core out the inside and we put hot caramel in it and we do like a cocoa fluff on the outside and we kind of go over the top of the caramel and then torch it and serve it with a uh, smoked candied pecans and some dulce uh, cocoa nib garnish. And that's, that's that guy. And then. That yeah. doesn't sound like a typical <laughs> kind of a dome all pockmarked up. No. It's like some really ugly pastel pink that you like crack open and it awkwardly falls apart. Like that's, that's what baked Alaska feels like to me. This sounds yeah. way outside the box. So I like that you're taking the fundamentals again, you're taking the, the technique of French cuisine, that inspiration, and then flipping it completely on its head. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I can't get enough of that. I like that. I think being grounded <laughs> in the technique is important. You got a clear North star of pushing creativity and being inspired, inspiring your people. And I know Gonzo is grateful to continue that relationship. He was a proud papa for sure. No, oh, Jacqueline that means Lopez, the world. thanks for the impact you're having on the industry and for the relationships that you continue to form. It means a lot, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.